0: Today's reading is from Deuteronomy in chapters 9 and 10. We're reading from chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 11. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them. And I've heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. And you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people.
1: Remember this, and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath, so he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, The Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes. Then, once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taberah, at Massa, and at Kibroth hatabah And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Baniya, he said, go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you.
0: I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and come up to me on the mountain. Also, make a wooden ark. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Then you are to put them in the ark. This is God's word.
2: Uh, welcome. My name's Matt. If we've not met, uh, it'd be lovely to do so uh, at some point this morning. Uh, there's a bit more time, I think, always in the summer. Never the same people here two weeks in a row quite with ins and outs. So it's a lovely time to, um, to chat to those perhaps who a little less familiar with. So uh, hopefully we have a, a chance to do that afterwards. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at this um, well, slightly strange story that Deuteronomy has for us. great God and Father, thank you and we praise you for the wisdom of your word that you give us uh, stories, accounts of your people in the past, Israel in the Old Testament, so that we are warned, so that we understand more clearly what it means to be a Christian here and now. And so pray that will be true this morning, that your spirit will be at work so we understand more clearly what it means to enter into your promised land. And therefore, we would wholeheartedly pursue you, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, back in about, uh, it was 2013, I think the first time they did this, a slightly strange thing happened. Uh, in uh, one week, demand for uh, theatre tickets in Theatreland, uh, so it was rumbling along. It was a sort of uh, April time, normal sort of ticket sales. And then all of a sudden, in one week, ticket sales went up by 200%. <laughs> uh, so they, uh, they trebled. And it wasn't just for one show. It wasn't just that a Hamilton or something that opened and everyone wanted to see Hamilton. Every single show went up by <laughs> pretty much the same amount. And uh, people were a bit confused. And all the theater owners were thinking, well, that's odd, but um, Kiching ching um, Happy Days, thinks... Um, Cameron McIntosh and uh, Andrew Weber, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, but eventually, what the, the the reason for this enormous surge in popularity in the theatre uh, became apparent. The BBC—it's their fault. The BBC had uh, online; they had this um, a bit of research done by uh, LSE, and they'd put an online class calculator. I think we can probably see it or some indication of It's this sort of thing. Um, and you, it was one of those things, you entered, uh, you answered 20 questions, and then it told you which one of seven classes you were there for in, in the UK. Now, this is a sort of thing that people from overseas sometimes find a bit bewildering, and in fact, no one in the UK really understands the class system anymore anyway. But um, you were put into one of seven classes. And people clocked very quickly the easiest way to go up a class or two, was to say you regularly went to the theater. So you had this very strange phenomenon that people were buying tickets for theater shows that they weren't really fussed about seeing in order that they could boost their score on a website that no one else would ever see. So they're spending money on stuff they didn't really want to spend purely for their own ego. Ego to boost themselves a class or two. Now, that's quite strange. Why would you do that? Why would you book in to see Richard III, whatever, if you don't like any Shakespeare, or whatever it may be? Because, what? Well, because we love to look down on people. If we're at the bottom, you certainly don't want to be at the bottom, you want to be in the middle. If you're in the middle, you don't want to be at the middle. I ought to be at the top, looking down at the people in the middle. I want to be in the middle. Middle's boring. And if you're at the top, well, I better make sure I stay there. And uh, so you've got to spend the money for that. It's just human nature, isn't it? We just know it in all sorts of different spheres of life. We love to just look down on people. I mean, we don't mind them being some people above us. But as long as there's plenty below us, that's fine. And, and we feel okay with that. We're obsessed with comparing one another. I did lots of ways. neither either here or there. Here's one that um, perhaps a bit more pointed at the moment. How would you feel? How would you feel if someone said to you, uh, "Yes, immigration's a bit out of control, and um, so here's the new policy, and uh, here's the new, the new criteria for uh, immigration and residency uh, in the UK, and uh, I'm afraid that morally I deserve to stay in the UK, but you don't. You're just not moral enough." you're not a good enough person to stay. I'm in, you're out. Now that might get under your skin a little bit more. And yet there's a sense in which that is the issue we're looking at here in Deuteronomy chapter 9. The issue of this text is a person saying, I deserve actually to be in simple terms, I deserve to be in heaven and you do not. For I am a good person and better than you. And so I'm in and you're out. Sorry. That is the issue. Now, if you just joined us this morning, we're uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. We're spending this month, really, just in in chapters 6 to 11 uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is is a sermon or three sermons that Moses preached to the Israelites around 1400 BC before they entered into the promised land of Canaan. And uh, apart from being just historically accurate and a true account of what took place there, the archaeology backed it all up, the reason it's recorded in the Bible, is just as so we can observe how they entered the physical promised land of Canaan. There's much to teach us today in the 21st century about how we enter the promised land of heaven. That's what we're to learn from this. This doesn't quite work, but it's a bit like, in one sense, you know how they train astronauts to uh, to go and do their thing uh, in space, uh, whatever they do, uh, experiments and drift around and eat freeze-dried food. Um, it's quite hard to train people for weightlessness here on Earth. It's quite expensive to try and generate such a thing. So most of the time, most of the training, if you're going to be an astronaut, you do it at the bottom of very deep water tanks because that deep water tank, you'd have that sense of you push off and you sort of drift a little bit. And that's as good as you can get without spending inordinate amounts of money to train people for weightlessness. It's not quite the same it sort of gives you some sense of it and i'm stretching things perhaps a little bit but these old testament stories they're a little bit like that they're here to help prepare us so we understand how is it that we can get into heaven what is the christian life meant to look like now in order to get into heaven and here in this text how did they get into the physical promised land of canaan is meant to help us understand how we get into the Promised land of heaven. Now, if you've been here over the last uh, few weeks or, or so, we've said, uh, we've called this little block of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 to 11, murmurings of the heart. Because really, that's the issue. What are you going to say in your heart? So in chapter 6, he's the great command of the book of Deuteronomy. You must love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, with your muchness, with all that you've got. You must love him with your heart. But then three times, chapter 7, 8, and 9, you get them saying different things. So chapter 8, Moses says, now don't say in your heart, we can't resist the people around us. We can't resist the culture. We have to blend in. Don't say that. If you were here last week, chapter 8, verse 17, don't say in your heart... Look at what I've achieved. Look at my impressive achievements. I am I am so, I'm a great one. Don't say that. Don't say, look at my accomplishments. And here, the the center really of this text is chapter 9, verse 4. Don't say in your heart, is literally what it says in the Hebrew, it gets translated, uh, verse 4. After the Lord has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, literally do not say in your heart, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Don't say in your heart, I'm a good person who deserves the promised land. Don't say that. It's not true. And uh, next time in chapter uh, 11, we'll start to see somewhat of the answer, what you are meant to do with your heart. But the question of chapters 9 and just a little bit of chapter 10 then is, how do you enter the promised land? For you and me, how do you enter the promised land of heaven? Um, Conscious, not all would agree that it even exists. But most have some conception of there being an afterlife, particularly when a loved one dies. You yearn for it, you long for it, you you desire it massively to be true. It is true, there is a place. Heaven now, the new heavens and the new earth to come. How do you get in? Well, let me break it down like this. Moses will say, it's not because you're good, one to six, because in fact you're really stubborn, seven to 24, so you have to trust in the one who pleads for you. 9 to the end, 9.25 to the end, okay? How do we get into the promised land? Not because you're good, because you're really stubborn. So you have to trust in the one who pleads for you. First thing, Moses say it's not because you're good. Briefly, let me um, read again verse uh, 9, 1 to 4. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. Here, Israel. You're about to go in to cross the Jordan and to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you. With large cities, have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall. Anarchites. You know about them. You've heard about it. Who can stand against the Anarchites? But be assured the Lord goes with you ahead of you like a devouring fire. He'll destroy them. He'll subdue them before you. He'll drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. Now, a brief comment on that. We thought a little more about this in chapter 7. But a brief comment then on the morality of the Lord destroying, wiping out some of the people of Canaan. I thought about it more two weeks ago, but to summarize the three little things, it's limited, it's judicial, it's unique. It was a limited time, excuse me, it was a limited. So actually if you read through the rest of the Old Testament into the book of Joshua, only four cities get destroyed. It's not a sort of genocide or anything like that. Four cities get wiped out. It is limited what happens. Secondly, it's judicial. That is, the cities that get wiped out are for their wickedness. This is a culture which was sacrificing their children because they thought it gave them better harvests. That is a deeply wicked culture. It's limited, it's judicial, it's unique. It is a unique moment in uh, history. The Israelites were entering into a physical homeland. Christians don't have that. We have no homeland. There's no magic, special place that is more holy than any other on the planet Earth. The Christians' homeland is in heaven. So we don't fight, battle for a physical place. We look forward to heaven. So look, it's limited, it's unique, uh, it's judicial. But verse 4 is the subject, or is the issue of the text. Let me uh, read verse 4. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord will drive them out before you so you get the what's going on here mr israelite says yeah yeah, i'm going into this wonderful promised land it's fertile it's got all sorts of wealth and it's got great mineral resources and crops grow brilliantly fantastic i'm going into this promised land and because i deserve it because i am morally a better person than the current inhabitants you know once it's just sheer racism i guess you'd say i'm morally better than those people that's why I deserve to get in and the response that Moses says is no 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 no. just because the inhabitants are wicked doesn't make you good you you can't make that comparison although it is one we tend to assume quite often I'm not wicked like them therefore I'm morally virtuous so I may, I don't know, I, I may hate my colleague. I may despise my colleague. I may sort of badmouth him, stab him in the back. Uh, if he's a boss, I may sort of belittle. If he's a junior, they're a junior. I may hate my colleague, and thats but I've never got a gun out and shot him. You know, I read a story the other day of someone who shot their boss. I mean, that that's wicked. So I'm better than them, therefore I'm a good person. Well, I mean... Relatively, you might say that's the case, but just because you haven't shot anyone in your office doesn't mean you're the perfect worker. Just because you're not wicked doesn't make you good. If you're divisive and bad mouthing all the time, doesn't make you a good worker. Okay, you're less wicked than the the the, 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 the shooter, but I mean, well done. Who isn't? Uh, in many senses. Or you might say to yourself, I don't know. I um, look if everyone you know. I lie all the time. I'm a sort of pathological liar. I just lie all the time. But, you know, when I went to court and had to testify on oath, I told the truth. So, um, you know, I'm not a liar in court, like some people are. So I'm a good person. Well, yeah, I mean, compared to the person who's lied on oath and therefore seen a miscarriage of justice, you're better than them. I mean, well Well done but your word is completely unreliable. You lie to everyone around you. I'm not sure that makes you good. Um... Look, I speed all the time on motorways. I mean, 70, pff, what does that even mean in France? You know, everyone goes faster. In Germany, they, they can't even count beyond, they don't go below 70. No cars built to go below 70 in the autobahns. So, of course, I speed all the time. And, uh, and of course, you know, 20 miles an hour, 20 is plenty. Not in my book, it isn't Twenty's nowhere near enough. You know, you have to do 40 miles an hour in the city, but I've never hit anyone. So, I'm not wicked. Well, I mean... Good for you. You've not hit anyone yet. I'm, I'm pleased about that. But it doesn't make you obedient to the rules. But that's the way we sort of play it in our minds all the time. We compare ourselves horizontally. And to people worse than us. And say, well, I'm pretty good. Whereas the Bible would say, look, as soon as you compare yourself vertically to what the standard that God requires. You're not a good person. Just because you're not wicked doesn't make you morally righteous. Good. We could all play the comparison game. But if you compare yourself to the worst, it's not very impressive, is it? Okay, so Mr. Israelite, you don't slaughter your own children. Well, that's good. I'm really pleased you don't do that. But that doesn't instantly make you righteous. It makes you just a little bit better than them. So for Israel back then, it was not their righteousness, their goodness, that means they enter the promised land. So why was it? Verse 5 again. End of verse 5, God will drive them out before you. Why? God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, you, you're not gonna get in because you're good. You're gonna get in because God made a promise years ago to your forebears, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promised them that you would enter into the promised land, and so you will. Not because you're good, but because you have a promise. That's all it is. How we enter the promised land is not because you're good then. Uh, and then Moses pushes a little bit further. Because verses 7 to 24, you're really stubborn. He says, let's just look at how you behaved before. You're really stubborn. Uh, verse 6, pick it up at the end there. Understand then, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. You are a stiff-necked people. And then seven and verses 7 to 24, they're, they're, they're bracketed by rebellion. Verse 7, remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Verse 24, you have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. Rebellious. And so Moses says, just remember what you're like, is the current phrase. Remember, don't forget, remember, don't forget. Keep coming up in, in these verses. Remember what you're like. And let me just give you one story, from your past that illustrates this sort of pattern of rebellion. And she reminds them, uh, back in the book of Exodus, God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. they've passed through the Red Sea. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up the mountain. They've all received the Ten Commandments. And the people have said, ah, God's too scary. God's too scary. We don't want to listen to God. Moses, you go and get the rest of uh, uh, the rules and regulations from the Lord. And so Moses uh, goes up to the top of the mountain and um, uh, is receiving instruction from the Lord. The people, meanwhile, are down on the plain and they get bored. And they say, what's happened to Moses. Or you know, is he just gone? Is Moses naffed off? No, no. If you remember Israel, you actually asked him to go and get these rules. From... What's happened to Moses? We're bored. What's happened to God? I mean, it was just a few days ago we heard him shouting in a way that terrified us, but we're bored now. And so they say, well, we're bored. We want new gods. This is functionally what happens. So Moses is up the mountain, but then verse eleven. Let me pick it up there. Verse 11, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets. That's both of them have got the 10 commandments on, one for the people, one for God, as it were, uh, representing uh, the relationship that he has with them. Verse 12, then the Lord told me, go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them. They've made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I've seen this people. They're a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. I'll make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw you'd sinned against the Lord your God. You'd made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You turned aside quickly from the way the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two stone tablets. I threw them out of my hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes. So what's happened here? Moses is... is gone up the mountain to get the sort of details of the uh, the, uh, the relationship between God and the people, and they've just got bored. They sort of said, yeah, 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 whatever. Two-finger salutes to your God, Moses. We're bored. I mean, it was all very well him bringing us out of Egypt, but it's boring. We've been here for 40 days. We want to crack on with life. You know, we want, something, we want some action now. Let's build ourselves a new God. We'll um, create ourselves a new God. We'll bow down to a cow made out of gold. And the Lord says, Moses, could you believe that? They were slaves. I, I went in and rescued them. I'm taking them to a spectacular promised land. And they just said, we're a bit bored. We want a new God. It is a, um, well, it's a staggering ingratitude. We don't live in our own house, uh, Live in a house that the church uh, uh, owns we're fortunate to own a flat that we bought um, when we first married. in South Southwest London, and it 's Ebden Fload who's lived in there over the over the years. A f- few years ago, we um, got some new tenants in. they seemed a nice family uh, mum dad and and their two kids and um, it was very pleasant. We, we gave them a sort of decent rent for it to add up. Their, their, their sums were a little bit tight and uh, renovated everything before they moved in. So they got a new carpets and everything was uh, freshly painted and you know, it was all very happy at the be- to begin with. Uh, and then we started to get phone calls from our old neighbors and emails saying, hey, the guys, your tenants, uh, they're despicable. Uh, did you know they've erected four sheds in the garden and are selling pigeons from them. Brackets. Who buys pigeons? Um, why would you buy pigeons? I mean, just go and nab some from Trafalgar Square or whatever. The, uh, no, they don't have them there anymore, do they? But there's pigeons everywhere. Anyway, They're selling pigeons. Uh, they said there's just poo everywhere. We can't go out in our garden. All the birds just poo all over us. Uh, and... Um, they're, they're, you know, they're very rowdy and noisy. And, you know, we ask them to turn, you know, to, to sort of calm down and be a little quieter. And they tell us to shoo, off. And uh, sometimes we walk past their window and they've looked at us and gone, you know, fairly aggressive uh behavior. Oh, and, you know, by the way, the police were around there uh, yesterday because, you know, they're selling drugs from the flats. And you think, Uh-oh. Um, and you sort of have polite conversation guys, what's going on, that was greeted with sort of enormous anger and, and, and vitriol, okay, slightly more aggressive letters go, indifference and uh, it's quite hard to get rid of unpleasant tenants if you've let me tell you, um, but uh, eventually after months and months of uh, letters and etc going forth, eventually bailiffs came in, changed all the locks, took all their stuff out uh, and removed them from the premises and the place was just trashed and um, we were a bit fed up with that. When you sort of have mercy upon a, a young family and sort of give them below market rent so their sums add up, and then you're just treated with contempt. I mean apart from the sort of the hassle and the stress, you just sort of be frustrated, not angry. Well it's a flat. Much more the Lord who essentially says, though, to Moses, look, I'm fed up, I'm angry with Israel. I can't believe that my saving them from slavery is greeted with indifference, and we don't care, and just go away. And so that's why the Lord says to Moses, very striking, verse 12, go down from here at once, Moses, your people whom you brought out of Egypt. He doesn't no longer are they my people that I brought out of Egypt, your people, Moses. You're the people, you're the people. Verse 14, I'm just going to wipe them out. Let's go again. Moses, I'll make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they are. Let's start again. We won't have the Israelites, we'll have the Mosesites. Let's have them, a a new gang. We'll start all over again. And this is how the Lord feels with people he's created and put in his world to enjoy it. And if we're indifferent towards him, well, well, he endures our dismissive attitude patiently for a while. But when we stand before him after our death, he says, look, I gave you life and the blessings of this world. You were completely indifferent to me. I'm, I'm not interested in you. You're out. So Moses recalls this story of Israel and says, this is what you're like. And, just, and this is just one example. So verses twenty-two to twenty-four, what I'm telling you here is just typical. So verse twenty-two, you also made the Lord angry at Taborah, massah Kilbreth, Hatavah. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Benair and said, Go and take up possession for the land, no, you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, then you didn't trust him or obey him. This is just typical of your behavior. Rebellion. Now, look, I guess it varies where we stand before the Lord this morning. Uh, if you're a Christian here, I, I hope you know that deep down in your heart, we are stubborn and rebellious. And I think we do know that with just a little bit of self awareness. You know, that there's just the same old things we do wrong all the time, be it active, sort of, sins, we just get angry still we lash out at people, still you think oh 10 years, 20 years of being a Christian I still do the same thing all the sort of more passive sins if you will of just indifference towards the Lord just not caring just going through the motions you think oh yeah sort a recurrent feature of my life I've never sort of knocked that one on the head, we are just sort of fairly stubborn. And if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you can see that's true. We make some progress, but we still stumble in the same old patterns of sinful behavior, selfish behavior. So Moses says, how, look, how will you enter the promised land? It's not because you're good. Because, in fact, you're really Stubborn. So what you need to do is trust in the one who pleads for you. Chapter 9, verse 25, to the end of the chapter, you need to trust in the one who pleads for you. Verse 25, Moses says, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. See, God has said, Moses, I'm done with them. I'm giving up on them. Chapter 9, verse 14. Moses, it's over. I'm fed up with Israel. They're done. But Moses says, hold on, Lord. Let me plead for them. Let me pray for them. And the specific details come, well, verse 27 to 29. Here are his prayers. Verse 27. Remember, Lord, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness, and their sin. Remember, same as in verse 5 of chapter 9, remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of their sin. Look, they're not going to get any better. Moses says, I'm not going to stand before you today and say, look, they've got this one wrong, but next time they'll do a bit better, Lord, because they won't. I'm not going to say that to you. Just overlook it, Lord, because remember, you promised that they'd enter the promised land. And similarly, the second reason of the second element of the prayer is verse 28. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he'd promised them, because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Look, consider your reputation, Lord. The Egyptians will just laugh at you and say you can't keep your promises. But Moses says, Lord, remember, you are a God who promised. And you always keep your promises, despite the appalling behavior of your people. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a cricket match. Uh, my son was playing in a cricket match, so uh, under-13s cricket, and a uh, 20-over game. His school batted first, and they just clogged uh, just an enormous total. It was 200 odd runs, which had under-18, excuse me, under-13 cricket to get over 200 runs. I mean, it's just you know, it's just ridiculous. You don't get that many runs in a 20-over game. They were going to win. It was obvious they were going to go and win. So uh, the captain, who's a nice lad. Uh, said to his team, right, okay, we're going to field now. And unusually, I'm just, everyone's going to bowl two overs by the wicketkeeper. All, Ten of us are going to bowl two overs. And look, I know some of us never bowl because we're batsmen, but today, why not? Because we're going to win. Let's give everyone a bowl, okay? Uh, and, oh, okay, it goes very nice, and you know. The sort of best bowlers were a little bit miffed, but it um, doesn't matter anyway. I was going to get um, uh, their two overs. Uh, one of the lads who had never seen bowl uh, came into bowl, and I don't think he'd ever seen anyone bowl before either. <laughs> I don't know what he was watching when he was uh, uh, the cricket because he sort of came, it was it was very unusual. Uh, he was like a, like a um, sort of like a medieval catapult. He, look, he sort of sort of ran in and um, these sort of and um, it was terrible. And he got tonked for about 26, I think it was, off his one over. And at that point, you think, it's not obvious we're going to win. A few more overs like that, and actually, you could be in a little bit of trouble. Uh, and he was uh, a little bit crestfallen, but um, uh, said gee, a few overs later to the captain, can I have my second over now? And everyone, the rest of the team, <laughs> probably not that deeply, actually. But um, the rest of the team were, sort of, no, 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 And um, he said, go, go on, I'll do better this time. I'll do better this time. And the captain looked at him and said, uh, you probably won't. But I did say you could have two overs. So go and have another over. Uh, the rest of the team were a bit taken aback. And he went for a similar amount of runs off the second over, but they still won. It was fine. It was fine. But it was very sweet of a 13 year old lad saying, uh, actually you won't do any better, but I have promised. So go on, have your second over. And in many ways, that, that is the guts of this prayer here that Moses makes. He doesn't say, Lord, look, Israel has is screwed up, but next time, next time they're going to do better. He says, Lord, Israel, your people, they are terrible. And they're going to be terrible in the future. Look, I'm, I'm, you know, just overlook their sin, would you? Because I'm not going to say they're going to do better next time. But you promised. That's the hope for Israel. God has promised. And of course, the Christian life is one where you don't become a Christian and say, "Right now, I'm a Christian. I'm going to live m- so much better that I'll, I'll merit God's blessing upon me." I mean, most people become Christians, and God is at work in them, and they do change, they do get it, but do get better, but never, never to merit God's blessing. We're still utterly reliant upon His promise to enter the, His kingdom, the land of heaven. You get the outcome of this story in, in chapter ten, verses one and two. Uh, Moses. Rebuilds, rebuilds, remakes the, um, the two tablets of stone. Chapter 10, at, the, at that time, the Lord said to me, out two stone tablets like the first ones. Make them all over again. In other words, okay, the relationship's back on. The relationship is restored. So what has made the difference between the Lord saying, well, I, I'm done with Israel, destroy them, and okay, let's have another go. Moses has pleaded. That's the difference. That's what transforms this situation. Moses has pleaded. A couple of weeks ago I was a little late for our Thursday morning Bible study. There's uh before here, before work on a Thursday. And uh, so my cycle route takes me uh, from south, uh, cycle up north, and uh, uh, you shouldn't, you're not meant to, but I just cycled through Green Park, because it was, whatever, it was half seven in the morning, a bit earlier than that, and I slightly figured, there's no one in the park, the rules don't apply, um, so <laughs> I'll get here on time. And uh, there is, there's hardly any pedestrians ever in the park on 7.20 or whatever it was on a, a Thursday morning. Uh, there, there was, however, uh, somewhat unreasonably, a police car, which, I mean, I, you know, the fact that bicycles are not allowed, but cars are, is just, is just desperately unfair. And uh, I was slightly in the zone of, I don't know, what are we doing this morning? Thinking about the Bible study, and it oh, doesn't quite work. And, uh, and then I looked up, and ooh, about so 50 yards in front of me, there's a police car. It's just me and them. And uh, they were over the path. I mean, I the first thought that went through my head was, if I go round you and go through that gate, you can't follow because it's too narrow for you. That was my first thought, if I'm honest. Um, but uh, uh, I'm not as wicked as them. So I didn't do that because I'm a better person than them. Uh, and so I didn't do that. So I stopped. And of course, the conversation runs. Uh, did you see the sign? It's morning, sir. Good morning, officer. Uh, sir, did you see the signs up which say no cycling through the park? I- yeah, yes, I did, officer. Did you know that it's an £80 on-the-spot fine for cycling through the park? No, I did not, officer. <laughs> I thought there was no one here and so the signs only applied when there are people here. <laughs> that sort of... When you say something, you realise that's so stupid. Um, uh, no, sir, the signs apply no matter how many people are in the park. I think you realise that. Can I just take one or two details for you, sir, before we get to the money. And then the bloke's partner next to him chipped in and said, well, maybe we should let him off with a warning this time. <laughs> Policeman number one, no, no, we've been told to crack down on cycling in the Royal Parks. Number two: two, oh, but I don't think you'll do it again, will you, sir? Now you've been warned. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, certainly won't. Uh, and they had this little bit of conversation, and eventually the uh, the nice policeman won, um, and they said, uh, "Don't do that again, then, sir." Uh, on your way. And it was a lovely little moment, and I was very glad that I had one there to plead for me, as it were, and so I was free. Moses is there to plead for Israel. For you and me, we're meant to read this and the New Testament will clarify that for us, Jesus Christ is the one who pleads for us. God the Father would look down upon you and me and say, the way they've lived their life with disgraceful ingratitude, I should just reject them altogether. But Jesus Christ is the one who says, no, no. Let me plead for them. And Jesus doesn't say, Father, overlook their sin, but says, Let me pay for their sin, as if my nice policeman gets out his wallet and pays himself. Let me pay for their sin upon the cross. And of course, the Father says, Yes, this is the plan we constructed together before the creation of the world. He is the one who pleads. So for you and for me, how will you enter the promised land of heaven? It's not because you're good. None of us are. In fact, we're really stubborn. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that. But you trust in the one who pleads for you. So in the end, when you get asked the question, how do you enter the promised land of heaven? You go one of two routes. You say, I deserve it. And compared to those wicked people, I am better than them. I am more moral than them. And I'm more deserving of them. Well, maybe you are. But anyone can play the comparison game and find someone worse than you. Everyone can do that. Or you go the second route and say, well, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to get in. I am stubborn. I'm selfish. But I trust in one who pleads for me. I'm not going to play the comparison game. I'm not going to look at others and say, well, morally I'm better or, or worse. I'm not interested in that. I know I fall short of God's standards, but I trust in what he pleads for me. Did you see what a difference that makes? Not just on how you get in, which is the primary issue here. How do you get into the promised land of heaven? You trust in Jesus Christ who pleads for you. But also when you know that it's only because he pleads for you. It does help you stop just playing that game of comparison morally with others. It's got to do that if we understand the basis from which we get in is not us, but Him. So there's your choice. You either say, I deserve it, or you say, I trust in Jesus Christ who's pleaded for me. You can't then play the game of comparison but you do get to get you do get to go to the promised land let me lead us in prayer hi great god and father you know the temptation in our hearts always to compare ourselves to others and Uh, I think that makes us more worthy, more deserving of perhaps entry into heaven or certainly of of your blessing. We don't want to play that game. Father, we pray that we be honest with ourselves, recognize our stubbornness, the, the sort of consistency with which we're ungrateful to you. Uh, and therefore, we'd know ever more deeply the liberating pleasure of trusting in the one who pleads for us, Jesus Christ. Would that give us absolute assurance of heaven and deliver us from envious, competitive comparison here and now. We pray it in his name. Amen.